want to purchase more than is available. It says 300,000 pounds available. Consumers want to purchase 500,000 pounds. It suddenly disappears from the shelf. You know, expected to last a couple of days. By 10 in the morning, it's gone. That's a so-called shortage. So what happens when the market is a shortage it disappears very quickly? The businessmen say, hey, it's going very rapidly. I can raise the price. And as they raise the price, the shortage begins to disappear, finally back up to the equilibrium point. Now, this is very fast. And again, it's because of the motivation, <clears throat> if the price is free to move, uh, the motivation is to make profits and avoid losses. And you get then to the, to the price which clears the market. Now, the supply and demand are exactly equal. Where people want, if there are 200,000, 300,000 pounds of peaches available, people want to buy 300,000 pounds. Exact clearance of the market. Supply and demand are equilibrated. One reason the word equilibrium. <clears throat> and and this, the higher price supply is greater than demand, so you have the surplus. The lower price demand is greater than supply, so you have a shortage. <clears throat> and what the free price movement does is wipes out surpluses and shortages as soon as they appear. You don't have, you never have on the free market anything like a permanent surplus or a permanent shortage. Anything beyond a couple of days, pretty quick. If you do have a permanent surplus or a shortage, the government is always in there interfering with it. Iron law. All right, so uh, this, um, now this is sort of, this, uh, orthodox economists have a similar approach here, except if you notice the supply curve is vertical. Uh, the orthodox textbook approach is supply curve is forward sloping. The Austrian view is the supply curve is vertical, so you're dealing with a day-to-day -day situation. How much is there, and how much are people? How much is there to the supply? How much do people evaluate it? And what way do people evaluate it on their value scales? That's the demand. So you have, in other words, things around resources, goods, various stages of production, and people evaluating these things. Demand and supply interacting. Um, and these are the only two things that can affect prices, supply and demand. And again, we go, I think, rapidly to this thing. Since, well, another reason for the word equilibrium is an analogy of physics and physical sciences where uh, an equilibrium is something which something tends to move toward and tends to go back to it if it's displaced from it. So it tends to stay in this particular spot and go back to it if it's displaced. Uh, so then the question is, the next question is, since we observe the prices change all the time, how come prices are changing? Why aren't they fixed? Why don't they stay frozen forever at this equilibrium point? Obviously because, only and only because, either demand changes or supply changes or both. Right? Those are the only two ways in which prices can change. <coughs> and um, so then, uh, okay, then we have the familiar thing. Again, I sort of, I guess everybody knows this, but at any rate, I'll, I'll zip through it. Yeah, stop me if you don't think it's, if you want to inject any comment or anything. As supply changes, let's say the, the famous, famous case I always think of, every few years the coffee freezes in Brazil, and the big frost, the coffee crop is destroyed or something, half of it disappears. This happened about five years ago, and then the big drop in the supply of coffee coming in. So supply curve shifts to the left. So this means that the old market clearing price, let's say before this, the last frost, the price of coffee is something like a dollar a pound, something like that. Yeah. And it's, let's say it's a dollar. 
That was the market clearing price before the frost. Then the frost comes, wipes out half the coffee crop. It means that the old price, you don't, it's no longer a market clearing, because now it's a big, demand is very much greater than supply. Shortage develops, and therefore the price zips up to clear it. And as it clears it, you wind up with a higher equilibrium price. <coughs> um, another thing that shows how price performs a so-called rationing function. In other words, there's only a limited amount, everything is scarce. There's not enough coffee for everybody to drink 10 cups of coffee every day in the world. And so somehow it has to be allocated. Somebody's going to get the coffee, somebody isn't. Somebody's going to get a certain amount. How is it allocated? The free market allocates it on the basis of individual choice preferences. As the supply drops from a million pounds of coffee to 500,000, whatever it was, so I cut in half, there's two ways of allocating the scarce supply. You have a government rationing committee. You know, so you, you, and you can only drink half of what you drank before. If you, don't, if you drink less, more than half, if you still drink the same amount, we shoot you, or whatever, but, you know, more than equivalent. <clears throat> That's one way to do it, totalitarian, evil, inefficient, everything. Uh, the free market is allocated smoothly and harmoniously, with each individual deciding on his or her own basis. Those, as the coffee price starts going up, those people who love coffee will keep either buying the same amount or cut their purchases off a little bit. Others, you know, coffee is sort of marginal, they said, how about I'm shifting to tea or shifting to cocoa or Pepsi or whatever. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. I think let's think in the last coffee frost, people started shifting massive amounts, and you wind up with this kind of uh, higher, the lower supply allocated very smoothly to each individual choices at a, at a higher price. <coughs> uh, conversely, okay, supply goes up due to better fertilizer or whatever, you know, better agricultural techniques. Uh, have an opposite situations at the old market clearing price is now a surplus. People don't want to buy that much coffee or whatever. And so in order to induce them to buy more, you have to cut the price. And you cut the price, wind up with a equilibrium <coughs> price, which is lower. So this accounts for price changes on the supply side. That's, uh, <coughs> in a free market economy, a capitalist economy, usually the tendency is for most goods and services to increase in supply. Uh, some a little bit, others a lot. So the tendency is toward falling prices. <clears throat> and uh, uh, for example, in the 19th century, which was a great century of industrial revolution, <clears throat> prices fell all the time except during wartime. And uh, why it rose during wartime is another story. Let's get to that this evening. So the, but the point is, without any interruptions or exogenous forces coming from the government, <clears throat> Prices tend to fall. <coughs> Dramatic examples are uh, uh, TV, calculators, and computers. Yeah. 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 Go on, because I know less about personal computers than anybody in the room, probably. And it's just unbelievable. I keep, they keep falling every day. Enormous. As supply increases, productivity increases, and, you know, the whole thing just explodes. I remember uh, less, a, lo a lower tech example is. When did the hand calculators come out? About 12 years ago or something? Yeah. Well, I, I, was it 10 years ago? 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. 12 years ago, right? 12 years ago. So I, was, I, I teach at an engineering university, something like this, I guess. And, um, 
and a friend of mine on the EE department, electrical engineering department, ran it in the elevator. Even though we are high tech, we call ourselves an engineering center of excellence. The elevators never work. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it was brand new engineering. Why didn't some? Why didn't you have a field trip or something to fix the damn elevator? <laughs> uh, this is of course too low flow, and that's done by other low types. At any rate. Uh, <laughs> And, they, and when they do work, they're very, very slow. You go off seven floors, it takes about 10 minutes. You have time for a lengthy conversation in the elevator. So I run, run up this guy in the elevator and he says, look, I got this magic thing. I'm a, a fantastic new product now. Since I know the vice president of this firm, I have a first, co you know, first copy or whatever. It's this magic thing. You hold it in your hand, and you press dots and so buttons, and it multiplies and divides like that. Fantastic. That's only $400. <laughs> so, now we, so now we have a much better calculator for eighteen dollars. It's enormous instead of inflation. Or, or the one that does the same for four dollars. Four dollars. We have yeah. 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 Wow. Into, uh, the watches. Fantastic. Yeah. Consider the prices have gone way up since then. Double to triple or whatever since then. It's unbelievable what the capital system can do when you give it its head. And actually, within about two or three years, the price had dropped to. From $168 yeah. something dollars to about $15, mm -hmm. and it stayed around that range. You yeah. Decent handheld calculator, mm -hmm. 15 but the features have increased. Yeah, right. Quality goes up. Of course, again, this is homogeneous in a sense. You have to consider the, the unit quality. You can do it. It's very difficult to measure quality, obviously. But you have to consider if you're comparing prices over time, you have to consider the price per unit quality. And uh, if the calculator is still $18, you think, but you have much better calculator, it's really much lower price per unit quality in the calculator. It's uh, TV sets are another example. It's a lower tech and older example. TV sets first came out in 1949. They were $2,000, which is now, what is it, $7,000 or $8,000 in current money or something. For a crummy set, you couldn't see anything. It was murky. It's, of course, black and white, but also very murky and shadowy. There's only about two, two, two programs on anyway. Uh, and also, <laughs> And also, the first family, one family in each neighborhood had it. So everybody trooped in every night to watch the Milton Berle or something, the big community. Uh. So now you have a situation where you have color television that's for 200 or 300, much infinitely better quality, unbelievable. The cable and everything, you can see everything, it's fantastic. Plus lots of programs and 45 channels or whatever. Plus everybody's got about eight, you know, eight TV sets, <laughs> including one on the bathroom, wristwatch TV, and everything else. So uh, even even people who are certified below the poverty level on welfare, lots of TV sets. <laughs> so uh, I mean, that shows again what happens with, with mass production and uh, tendency toward lower prices. Isn't that beautiful? Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, <clears throat> at any rate, that, uh, uh, so a question you might ask, why do prices will keep going up? In general, let's, I say tonight, we get to the macro part of it. But, uh, the, uh, okay, so one, another thing here is that the, the, where, does, where does cost come in this whole thing? Uh, the, the, uh, the usual doctrine of, uh, well, businessmen, a lot of businessmen, a lot of laypersons say that prices are determined by costs. Production. This was this was the Smith and Ricardo basically said that Marshall and the standard classical British classical economics and neoclassical coming down to the 1930s or so. Uh, if costs are higher, uh, prices will be higher, vice versa. And where's the cost in here? You've already gotten the analysis. It's fine. I haven't talked about what kind of shift in demand. Okay, I forgot that, but it's pretty clear okay, that if demand increases, you have an increased price for something. Demand drops, you have a lower price. And this 
by the way, determines future resources. Uh, I should get into that before I get the costs. Uh, if uh, <clears throat> the man, if, if, if you're given given the money supply, okay, the man can only if you have if, if, if somebody's out there printing money all the time, which of course is what's happening in real life, then all the man curves will rise because everybody's got more money in their pocket, and so every person will pay more money for the same. Will buy more at a given price. So you have a general floating upward of demand curves. <clears throat> Aside from that, without that entering picture, if the amount of money is fixed, uh, you don't have this, this constant printing money, uh, people have a certain amount of income, certain income. If they buy more on one thing, they have to buy less on something else. So demand curves will tend to shift around uh, and uh, according to consumer preferences and values, which change you know, unpredictably anyway. So. Uh, the, the standard example back in the 1930s was that people shift from pork to beef to get more affluent. It's still true. In other words, somehow pork is considered low type. And so as, as people get higher living standards, they tend to shift from pork to beef. Okay? The proportion that they buy shifts. Okay? So, so then you have the pork market and the beef market. Right? And then, uh, right, that would any moral. <laughs> Moral uh, condemnation or approval can be made in this situation. Anyway, so then you have a situation where uh, the demand for pork falls and the demand for beef goes up. Okay, so, and what you have initially is a demand uh, meaning how much people pay at any given price. Okay? And nobody knows exactly what it is, by the way. It's another key point the Austrians always make. Textbooks always say, here's the demand curve, here's the cost curve, and you grind out how much will be produced and the prices. Nobody knows what they are in the real world. The businessmen and entrepreneurs try to, in the uncertain world of entrepreneurship, try to estimate, trying to find out what the demand curve is and what the costs are. It's like one of the key differences between Austrian economics and the Walrasians who are now dominating the economics profession. <clears throat> and it says there in the textbooks, given the demand curve, given the cost curve, this is how much will be produced in Generally, the wood range you haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, but the point is given to whom? Nobody knows it. It's not given at all. You have to, the market is a process of trying to find out what's going on and hopefully learning and adjusting the changes and so forth and so on. It's a very, very different kind of approach. Okay, so uh, so then there's a higher price for beef and lower price for pork initially, the reaction. Uh, because, of, again, the old, the old price, people don't want to buy as much pork. Surplus piles up. And so price has to fall, <clears throat> so people will be induced to buy, to buy the same amount of pork as they did before. The beef market, again, more people want to buy beef at, different, at any given price, and so the price of beef has to go up, eliminating this transitory shortage. Uh, other more modern examples, since World War II, there's been a big shift in consumer preference from red wine to white wine. Enormous shift. So that the uh, <clears throat> part of the reason why California wines are not very big because California reds are not, not too hot. California whites are just as good as French whites. So as the uh, as preferences shifted from red to white, in the old days you're only supposed to drink white with fish and chicken. Now people drink white with everything. So that <clears throat> that means the California whites now become very big. And so the, the demand curve for white wine goes up, the demand curve for red wine goes down. Also, what's happened is the tremendous shift in alcohol preferences out of bourbon, for example, into vodka. So 
1948 Iraq rocket, except a few Russian emigres. And nowadays, rocket is enormous. So there's a big shift, and they're both the same sort of so-called lightness. I guess heavy bricks and sort of light bricks. So again, you have an increase in man curve for vodka, drop in man curve for bourbon. Now what happens then is this brings us down to production, which I haven't really gotten there. So far I've been talking about the given, the given supply supply line, how much is available. <clears throat> we haven't talked about yet is who, does, who decides how much is going to be available. Who decides there's going to be 200,000 pounds of peaches today? Or a million loaves of Wonder Bread or whatever. Well, producers have decided, you know, five years ago, two years ago, ten years ago, depending on what the kind of technology and how much how long it takes to produce stuff. <clears throat> they decide on the basis of expectations, expected demand, what they think the demand will be, what they think the price will be, what they think the cost will be. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Those who are right make profits, those who are wrong suffer losses. So <clears throat> what happens here is that the, the case of, let's say, let's say red wine and white wine is more interesting than pork and beef. <laughs> Here is the white people, and they say, well, you know, they see that there's a big increase in demand for white wine, drop in demand for red wine. They have to figure out whether it's going to be permanent or not. Is it transitory? Is it only a couple, will it will only last a couple of months because, I don't know, Kennedy likes white wine or whatever? They have to make a decision whether it's going to be semi permanent or, or transitory. They make the decision, let's say it decides to be permanent, they turn out to be right. <clears throat> they start retooling. If they're smart, or say, we'll be able to survive, they start. Increasing the production of white wine and reducing the production of red wine, or increasing the production of beef, reducing the production of pork. A different technological units, so different, you know, some things take two weeks to retool, some things take 10 years. It depends on what you're producing. But what happens is over time, you'll have an increase, a shift of the supply line to the right here. The response to the higher profits expected to be made <coughs> because of the increased demand. And you wind up with something like this. So in the long run, you have. You wind up with a price somewhere in between and greater production of white wine. <clears throat> and with red wine, you start shifting out of us. The supply lines keep going to the left. You wind up somewhere in between over here. <clears throat> and uh, this uh, is a long run response okay, to changes of demand. So what happens is <clears throat> that this indicates one thing, for example, how, about, how production is a response to anticipated or expected demand upon the consumer. Consumers are the drivers of the engine. Okay? Producers are very anxious to figure out what consumers are going to buy next year, 10 years from now, whatever. And they move into the situation, if they think consumers are one of them want white wine heavily, they'll move into that, they'll move out of red wine. Okay? If, they make, if they're mistaken, they lose money. If they're, if they're correct, they make money. They make profits and lose money if they don't. Usually on the market, entrepreneurs tend to be pretty good at it, because otherwise they go bankrupt and drop out. It's a sort of a law of survival of the fittest. <clears throat> so if you're, it's not necessarily happening, sometimes you can make a lot of boo-boos. But basically, the tendency is for successful forecasters, entrepreneurs to do well, and they might remain in the market, and for unsuccessful ones to drop out. Okay, so, uh, at any rate, <clears throat> if you take the locus of any given shifts in demand, hypothetically, take this intersection, this long run intersection point, you will get some, some, a line like that. This is the, the textbook supply curve, the forward sloping supply curve. The reason why Austrians stress the vertical supply curve is the, is the long run supply curve is totally different. It doesn't belong on the same diagram, okay? Because time is involved here. It's a third, it really needs three dimensions, right? Uh, <clears throat> different things, it's like apples and peaches. Please. Demand curve is instantaneous. It's a freeze-frame situation. At any given day, how much will be 
but what are the different prices? And nobody knows exactly what they are, but we do know it's falling. That's what we know. We know that people, consumers will buy less at a higher price and more at a lower price. Uh, supply curve at any given day is instantaneous. There it is. The stuff is there. 300,000 features. Over the long run, this is how much will be evo evoked for the demand curve keeps shifting. And prices such and such, this is how much will be supplied in the long run by white by, by wine manufacturers, vice versa. So <coughs> that's. Uh, and, and it's, this, this thing is philosophically sloppy, too. They have forward sloping, backward sloping. So two different things involved. See, the Austrian position focuses on the, not only has this, the correct axes for the correct time period, the Austrian position focuses on people subjectively, subjectively evaluating goods and services which are there, ready for sale. This thing focuses on really nothing. So it doesn't focus on any of that. It becomes mechanical, it becomes mechanistic, it becomes removed from actual action. So that's, anyway, that's. Um, I've been talking about an hour now. Anybody, anybody have any comments or questions? Yeah, I was just oh. glancing at your book, and you yeah. have a vertical mm. supply curve diagram, and right next to you have a positive supply curve diagram. You have a lot of. That's the locus. That's the. We have oh, a whole bunch of little ones. But it, it, that's useful too. It's just a different. Yeah, it's useful to show that, that, yeah, that, that if you. Pay a higher price, you'll get more in the long run. <coughs> more will be produced in the long run. It's not true, of course, for Rembrandts. Right? The five Rembrandts are fixed, frozen forever. I mean, nobody produces any more Rembrandts if Rembrandt is dead. Unless you have a perfect forger. <laughs> okay? Uh, yeah. <coughs> one of the faults, one of the other faults of that type of spread where the demand curve crosses the supply curve. Yeah. Mislabeled as the supply curve. Yeah. So it doesn't allow for the. The, uh, the different situations that you, you find them, like some markets are much more volatile than others. Exactly. Well, in, in a lot of things, so you, you have other ways that the prices uh, <coughs> determine like, in many things you have unique items. Mm -hmm. And in a unique item, if, if I don't have any great time preference, uh, an upper bound on, on what I'm uh, willing to pay is what I think I could produce another item for given time of the same sort. And the lower bound on what I'm willing to pay is, uh, is uh, my value of a, a nice return over future value of present value of future cash flow given given a sale. Yeah. So I, I given a sale <coughs> by, by a, uh, an apartment building. Yeah. Well, then I'm, I'm probably unwilling to pay more than what I think I could put a similar apartment building up for. And on the other hand, I'm at least willing to pay a price that the cash flow will give me a, say, 20% return on my money. So I, I have some balance on it. Yeah. And then I also look at uh, what similar apartment <coughs> buildings have been, been bought for. But uh, I, th I think there's, there's, there's other measures of uh, what you're willing to buy and pay. Most of these things uh, that you're, uh, you're, you're talking about, uh, the red wine, white wine, the uh, beef, pork, uh, are, are fairly uh, <coughs> non-business-like decisions. They're, they're decisions, what will I do with my money? I, I've got to eat something tonight, so let's flip a coin. Who cares whether I eat beef or pork? It's just sort of... They're, they're, they're decisions that are, are made on the uh, sort of spur of the moment thing. Why the spur of the moment? Might be or might not. Well, it's so maybe from the aspect of the consumer, but certainly not from the aspect of no. the seller or the right. producer. Or He's going to anticipate. But the, the, the demand is <coughs> the, 
general. Uh, I'm going to cry. Let's put it this way. Economists have certain functions. No, I'm not a business economist, but I know, I know some. First of all, they write speeches for their chairman of the board of presidents. Yeah. That's all right. That's an important function. Usually, the speeches are pretty good. If you look at business, I, I, a friend of mine used to be an economist. He used to work for Business Week. The economist Business Week. No, excuse me. Before Business Week, he did work. Before that, he was working as a speech writer. Uh, for different corporations. He, he said, the speeches, the speeches are great. They all sound hardcore free market. And, and actions, of course, are totally different for the same people. But this business speech is usually pretty good. <laughs> so that's one thing economists do, they write speeches. Um, but it's also, it's also sort of a PR function. Okay? I have, we have an economist, too, and he does such and such, and it looks good to the public, it looks good to the stockholders. There's also a problem with stockholders' suits. There's lots of stockholders, stockholders suing in the, in the management. Uh, and so the manager says, yeah, we see we, they, cover, they cover their rear, so to speak, all right? We made this decision. We had the fleet of top PhDs who were advisors on this. Okay, that's another function. Uh, all, of us, all of us has a certain, you know, we need to take on the mentions of a racket. <laughs> At any rate, the, uh, yeah. There was an article in the Really? What? Um, the, the I'm sorry. Is going to be this that inflation rate and such as unemployment rate and such and such. Right? Usually they're wrong. Matter of fact, that the the um, there are people who, who judge, who, there are economists who estimate, who, who, who analyze forecasts. They've been doing that for quite a while now. How good are they? And every every survey that's ever made of forecasts is they, they total flop a rule. In other words, as a matter of fact, you take you simply uh, take a ruler. This is. This is time, right? You know, 1972, 1980s, etc. If you take whatever statistic you're going about, it's been going like that. You simply go a ruler and extrapolate trend. You do better than like high-speed computer models, and you get a metric forecast okay? on the average. <coughs> better. So, of course, you can't charge uh, five hundred thousand dollars for a corporation to take a ruler and go online, right? <laughs> so, the. Uh, and they say, you know, and the Wall Street Journal, every once in a while, we talk about the perils of forecasting. And they had one, I think, last, uh, about half, six months ago. And they're complaining about, gee, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, we can do pretty well when, when trends don't change. Essentially, <laughs> 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 essentially, they're taking a ruler. Okay? The problem is to predict when the trend goes down or up. That we, can't, we haven't been able to attack that yet. <laughs> so, of course, I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, obviously, if you maybe, the problem was the forecast changes in trend, they can't do it. Abysmal. And uh, the forecast almost all the same, in a very small range. Uh, the reason is because nobody wants to be different from the other guys. See, the thing is, it's, it's like running in packs. If, you, if you're hired by a corporation or you're, if you're they're forecasting companies, data, I forget the name of data resource incorporated or something, Auto Eckstein is the, most, the biggest one. If you're hired by companies to forecast, if you're, if you're wrong, and most of them are wrong, if you're wrong in tax, they say, well, geez, it's the state of the art. I couldn't help it, right? 
Everybody was wrong. Only top economists were wrong. It's the way life is. But if you're way out of line, if you say, you know, inflation would be 2%, the other guys say 8%, it's 8%, then you're, at, then you're finished. You know, you're way out of line with everybody else, and therefore you're turkey. So uh, if you're all wrong together, no, no, no individual person can be blamed. So as a result, they all, they all, first they're all interacting with each other all the time, they use the same models and all that, all wrong. <laughs> so they wind up in very similar, the range of differences is very, very small. There's also one interesting problem with this thing is the, which uh, I was troubled me for a while, is they can have the uh, investment forecasters and all that, they're always wrong. Okay? Uh, the investment newsletters, which do forecasting of stocks and commodities and all that. Take, for example, Elliot Janeway, one of the most famous, but consistently wrong now for about 20 years. Way wrong. I go predict. The Dow Jones average is going down from 1,000 to 506 months. Okay, six months of rise, it's still about 1,000. Why not everybody, you know, why doesn't he lose all of his customers? It's an interesting question. It seems to be what the leftists call, state is called market failure, only in, in market forecasting business. Okay. So, um, well, there are various, I, so I was walking around asking people about this, people are in the business and so forth, and they, uh, they admitted this, that there's people make millions from consistently wrong forecasts. So what's the, what's, what's, what's giving, what's, what's up here? Well, it turns out, well, like, one, one answer is, well, like, you get new suckers coming in, but that's not really good enough. It's not very satisfying. The market's supposed to work so the better people lined up, you know, as forecasters. Well, it turns out, uh, and the answer that was given, which I think is correct, is essentially forecasting of that sort, especially not so much for businesses, but for individuals who buy market letters, is really a consumer good. It's not really, it's not really a, the purpose is not to find out, not the forecast. That's why nobody checks up on the forecast. Nobody cares if you're wrong six months later. They, they enjoy looking, reading the forecast. They enjoy listening to the guy say, there's going to be a depression in six months. There's going to be a wild inflation in six months. That's the enjoyment. It's consumer good. Okay. This is the way. It's not, they don't care whether he's right or not. They just like to hear it. It's just it's printed material. Yeah. Like enjoying the Tom Reader. It's like a showmanship. If you notice, the guys really make a lot of money. Those who are great showmen like this guy. Joe. 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 Right. Granville. Goes in a whole act. And so it's like showmanship. like watching entertainment. essentially what it is. And once I realized that, then I'm like, my troubles were over. I realized it's not a market failure. It's just a crazy market. So that shows you what... Economics is an art. If I may say something, yeah, sure. That uh, th there is no great need for economists, like there is no need for psychiatrists. <laughs> People like to go to psychiatrists yeah. because they want to talk to somebody. They want to go to listen to economists yeah. in business because it is nice to hear. Nobody takes them seriously, especially. And you, you it's, but it's nice to have a long-range planning committee mm -hmm. who plans for the next 20 years yeah. because you know it really doesn't matter what they do. <laughs> the only difference I see in the Austrian economists and the, in the classical, uh, basically in British-based economies, the English, that the Austrian, being Austrians coming from Middle Europe, uh, they don't take them so seriously. This is uh, and, and, and they don't have this scholastic seriousness, this academicism, mm -hmm. and this is the, why, why they can come to that conclusion. And I think this is in the nature of the Austrian uh -huh. economy that they don't take them the same seriously, and they see that there are an amount of uncertainty, that everything is relative. I am judging the values through my own judgment. There are no objective values. There are no definitions like 
goods which you are looking because what is a, every item, the end, every item in that definition is relative through my own judgment. So, so they come to that final conclusion that economy, like the, the Austrians who invented the psychiatry, they came in also at the same conclusion. <laughs> and, and it is exactly the same Viennese intellectual yeah. who in the Viennese coffee house had nothing else to do after playing chess yeah. to go into economic theory or, or to go into psychiatry. Yeah. Some became Freud, the other became yeah. Mengele. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing, one thing is, uh, is involved here also is that, is that uh, in Austrian theory, all economic laws are qualitative and not quantitative. We don't know the quantity. We know the, the price. The, the price for more people will buy it. I mean, more will be purchased, and there will be a shortage. So there's no economic law that tells you how, how much it will be, how much the price will fall, what the shape of the demand curve is, uh, what the price will be next week, and so forth. And that's so. And and uh, it's considered. And this is really gets to the real important philosophic point about the Austrian method, which is uh, I was telling Mary today. It's much more. We're much more in a minority nowadays. The free market, the sort of a lot of free market economists, they're not as consistent as Austrians are, but they're more or less sort of semi-free market economists now. So the real minority we're really in is methodological and philosophical. They can't stand the fact we say there's no such thing as quantitative rules. You can't predict the future quantitatively. You can't say the price of corn is going to be such and such in six weeks, or ten years from now, or something. And um, so that's uh, and, and that's uh, so. The, <coughs> Those people who believe that there are, that can, you can have quantitative laws, you can say, no, no, uh, the, the demand curve is point, uh, point 0.3 times or whatever, uh, are really determinists. We I mean, really think that you can sort of determine the future. There's no free will. Human action doesn't change. But people are like objects or molecules. And you can, therefore, you can therefore chart them like can chart like can chart molecules. After all, physics are quantitative laws, right? It's what the, how, the, how the missile will fall as it's being shot. And these people tend to think, and, and, and sucked into modern scientific methods, so-called modern scientific method, sucked in the idea that people can be treated just like objects or molecules, and can then chart their course and determine everything they're going to do. So that's a key difference, and that's why Austrians are very much in the minority, and that reason alone. And they just can't. Most, most uh, hard scientists, so to speak, in economics, think they're hard scientists, want to get the prestige of physics and mathematics, which is real science, can't stand them. They just, they just go bananas. <laughs> that's that, that's an important, very important point. Uh, so, because um, now it's a, a so-called so social sciences or sciences of human action, as Mises would put it, it's now considered the only real science is math and numbers and all that. That's what science is. That's how you build the atom bomb or whatever. It is. So that's uh, and that still is uh, very uh, dominant profession. <coughs> so that's uh, yeah, that's a crucial point. By the way, I can't resist this. It has nothing to do with the point. We're talking about old Vienna. Mises used to be full of great anecdotes about old Vienna. He was my mentor, and he was, uh, of course, lived there for all his life until the 1930s. And so one time he was walking down the street, and the logical positivists were big in Vienna. And they had their own cafe. Everyone, and the Austrians had their own cafe. And the economists had their own cafe. So Max Scheler, who was a distinguished German economist, German philosopher, uh, was walking down the street, streets of Vienna with Mises, and he said, Tell me, Lou, how is it? Why is it? What is there on the climate of Vienna that produces all these damn logical positivists? Mises, with typical shrugs, said, Well, he said, after all, Max, there are six million people in Vienna, three million people in Vienna, and only 12 logical positivists. <laughs> they can't be the climate. <laughs> anyway, that's a typical Misesian anecdote. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, that's, that's a oh, oh, one thing uh, about forecasting. I can't resist this one too. This uh, the uh, outside economists again always trying to say criticizing the market, saying there should have been more steel produced, or should have been less of that produced, more of that. And uh, Mises' response was always, "Why don't they go and produce it? You know, if there's a market failure, there's a hole in the market. As entrepreneurs, they should go out there and, and, and fill the gap." And uh, <clears throat> And on forecasting, you would say, oh, well, people, for example, still claim they can predict, predict the stock market or commodity market to a T, that system. Well, if they really could do it, they wouldn't be wasting their time producing newsletters. They'd be making $2 trillion. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, one time I saw a TV show uh, where, or a talk show panel or something. It was a panel of forecasters or sports forecasters, people predicting baseball and basketball and all that. And the host was, you know, talking about forecasting. Each, each of them putting out weekly letters, and um, and finally the the, the 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 talk show host by accident sort of stumbled into a key question. He said, "Well, first he said, yes, yeah, uh, do people bet on your own predictions? Oh, of course we do. We 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 believe convinced wholeheartedly, and we bet on the football game. And you're usually right. Yes, yes, we're right 98 percent of the time or something. And he says, then it hits the, the host. He says, well, in that case." You know, you must, you must be making millions of dollars. Why are you wasting your time? Putting, why are you putting out these newsletters? And the guy, he's never heard the question before, the baseball forecast or something. He says, he says well, I swear he said that. He said, well, I think, it's, I think it's important to give this information to the public. In other words, it's sort of an altruistic thing. You the public know about this great information. <laughs> so anyway, I thought it was a, a low point or high point forecasting theory. <laughs> So, uh, <clears throat> okay, we get to, I guess we can get to cost now, which we haven't really touched on enough before. Uh, there's a tremendous difference on cost theory between Austrian and everybody else, and, uh, Orthodox. Um, the uh, classical, neoclassical view is that, uh, in the long run at least, in the long run, prices tend to equal cost of production. Uh, the theory is something like this. Well, uh, if you have an industry with uh, 8%, 20% profits, and other industry with 2% profits, uh, people tend to move out of a low, you know, industry with low profits or losses, move into the industry with high profits, and get equalization. So you wind up with more or less equal profit rates across the board, or zero profit rates, depending on the theory you're dealing with. And <clears throat> prices then equaling a cost of production throughout. So that in the long run, Marshall's famous two blades of a scissors. Well, it's true in the short run, which somehow they thought is being somehow, somehow unimportant. It's the real world, unimportant. Uh, it's true in day-to-day -day life. Uh, utility determines price, etc. You know, the supply, you know, vertical supply line. But in the long run, it's really cost of determinant. You know, in the long run, it's uh, the, 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 the famous metaphor of Alfred Marshall was that uh, <clears throat> Alfred Marshall, by the way, heir of Smith and Ricardo's, a neo-Ricardian. The importance of Marshall was he brought back the car after the car was more or less dead in the water. In other words, his theory was more or less out. Uh, and Marshall brought it back with tremendous prestige, professor at Cambridge University, right in 1890, uh, whatever, 1920s, 18s. So Marshall's famous metaphor was, well, it's like waves of the ocean. If you look at any day-to-day prices at the height of the wave, particular wave, but in the long run, the price is going to be the level of the ocean. 
So the ocean is more important in an individual way. So this sets the thing so that <coughs> economists then get interested only in the long run, which never exists for the reason we're going to, and not in the, in the short run or the immediate day to day thing, which of course do, does exist. <coughs> uh, in the long run, prices would be equal to the cost of production, uh, or determined by the cost of production, even worse than that. Uh, the Austrian view of cost is very different. The Austrian view is the only cost, there's no such thing as a real cost, some kind of objective cost which is out there, which somehow where demand is ephemeral and you wind up at a cost level. Cost is, the, is what you give up to get something. <clears throat> okay, in other words, um, in the case of uh, me buying a newspaper, the price of the newspaper is the value to me that when I give up is 30 cents. So the cost to me is 30 cents in a newspaper. More importantly, if you get uh, all sorts of choices, let's say, where do I spend the next this evening or something? And you say, well, I'm not talking about this particular thing, I'll say next evening. You say, well, you have uh, I can go to movie A, movie B, go to party A, party B, I can read book A, book B. I have about 10 choices, let's say. And you decide to allocate your time to movie A. <clears throat> I think that's the most important on my value scale. You don't have to make a big thing out of it because you don't have to spend a lot of time at it, but you spend some time at it. Okay, I'm going to movie A, I think that looks pretty good, I like the director or whatever, star. The cost of, the, of going to movie A is you consider the price of the money, but you also consider it, probably more so, is the, what you give up for it, which is probably movie B, which you don't go to. You, you quote, sacrifice movie B, and go to movie A instead. <clears throat> so the cost of movie A, going to movie A in that sense, is, is movie B. Okay. In other cases, like if, if, if the value scale is newspaper 30 cents, then the cost is 30 cents. In other words, the cost of doing something, of taking any action, making any sort of choice, is the, is the highest value of what you give up. You give up on 10 different things. The highest one is, is your cost. Okay, so conclude from this, cost is subjective to each individual. Only the individual knows the, the cost of his action. Nobody else can know it objectively. No, no economist, no government bureau, no statistician knows your cost. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, you can see the guy went to a movie. You can say, well, he gave up. He spent $5. That, that's not necessarily the cost, because he might have gone to the second movie down the corner, which was also $5. In other words, put it again here. Take a value scale. <clears throat> and movie A, movie B, Five dollars. In other words, you stay home. We don't spend any money at all. So in this situation, the cost of going to movie A is not the final. It's higher than that. It's the second movie you get. The movie you give up.